listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Good to see you. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Feels weird to not say turn to Matthew, I'm going to be honest. Uh, and if you're a guest with us and you're wondering <clears throat> what sort of inside joke you missed there, the reason why is we just finished 61 weeks through uh, the gospel according to Matthew. Yeah, praise God. And I think um, the temptation is to just you know, finish that and move on, what's next, which I'll tell you in a second what's next. But um, typically what we do when we gather in this room is we do that. We preach through books of the Bible. We pick a book, preach through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, until we get to the end, then we pick a different one. And the reason why is because we believe what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 is true. Let me read this for you. It says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. This word, breathed out, if you have a different translation, it might say all scripture is inspired by God, right? But this is not like what we would mean if we say, hey, this person inspired me to do something because the Bible doesn't say that the biblical authors are the ones who are inspired. Uh, it says the scripture itself is inspired. The scripture itself is breathed out by God. This breathed out is the only time in the, in the Bible that this word is used. And it's two Greek words pushed together. The first word means God. The second word means blue, like when the winds blow. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew chapter seven, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, same word as the second half of inspired, and beat on the house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. So in talking about the scriptures, the, the, this book right here, the apostle Paul takes two Greek words, he coins a new term, saying that every word in this book is God-breathed. Yes, they are written down by human authors from their own human perspectives, but every single word, because of God and his sovereignty, he's the one who inspires or breathes out every word in the pages of scripture. Again, this is why we typically preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. It's why next week we are gonna start a sermon series on the Old Testament book of Jonah. Um, and uh, it's why last week, we finished 61 weeks of the Gospel of Matthew. I don't have time for this, but I did this, I just looked back at this this week and I was encouraged by it. If you're part of our church, I hope you will be too. Um, before the Gospel of Matthew, can anyone even remember how far back? It was 2021, I think. Um, we spent 15 weeks in the letter First Peter. Preach that book. What God has to say to us through that letter. Before that, 27 weeks in Exodus. Before that, 14 weeks in 1 John. Before that, 25 weeks in the second half of the book of Genesis. Before that, 13 weeks in Colossians. Before that, 20 weeks in the Old Testament book of Judges. And I can go on and on and on. Why? Because all of it's God-breathed. Because all of it is profitable, he says. Another way to translate that is valuable for us if we wanna be who God has created us to be and do what he's created us to do. So here's why I mentioned that. Last week, we finished the gospel, Matthew, to, my hope today is to really, before we get to Jonah, is just sort of put a period mark on what Jesus, what we saw last week specifically and really what we saw in the whole gospel. Last week, what we saw is in the closing verses of that book, the resurrected Jesus commissioning his disciples. 
right? So the resurrected Jesus commissioning his disciples. Uh, this word disciples, Bill said, is, is a word that means learner or follower. So just picture the scene for me, okay? The resurrected Jesus, the second person of the triune God who has always been and will always be, the one who Colossians 1 says is the visible image of an invisible God, that all things were created by him, through him, and for him. Hebrews 1 says he upholds the universe by the words of his power. I don't even know what that means, okay? Somehow, with his power and his authority and the way he speaks, the world works the way it does because Jesus allows it to work. Uh, The one who Philippians 2 says, one day every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess about him that he is Lord, that he is the king of kings, that he is the supreme ruler over all creation. This Jesus, who left his rightful place in heaven where he was surrounded by the heavenly host who never ceased to offer worship and praise to him. That Jesus left heaven willingly. He came to us. The beginning of Matthew's gospel says that he came, he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem of Judea, which is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That Jesus left heaven, he came to us, was born of a teenage mother named Mary. The eternal son of God came, lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die. On the third day, he rose again, forever securing Uh, victory for anyone who put their faith in him over sin and death. This Jesus, now at the end of the gospel of Matthew, is on a mountain with some of his followers and he commissions them to do what? Go and, you guys did about as good as the eight o'clock. All right, we're gonna try that one again. He commissions his disciples to go and make disciples, right? Go and make followers. This is what this resurrected Jesus sends his church out in this way. This is him giving them their mission statement for their lives. Essentially, he's saying, spend your life to this end. And you go, well, what part of my life? Yes. My money? Yep. My time? Yep. My energy? Yep. My gifts, talents? Yes. Spend your life to this end, going and teaching and showing people what it means and what it looks like to follow after me with their lives. This is why Bill said last week, our mission statement is birthed out of the Great Commission. CBC exists to glorify God by equipping people, helping people follow Jesus through community and the Bible. This is what we exist to do. We exist to make disciples, to help people follow Jesus. Let me clarify something. When I say we, I think when you're listening to me, you have a tendency to think about somebody else, right? So when I say we, I'm not talking about me and Bill. I'm not talking about our elders or our staff or our deacons or our kids volunteers or our group leaders or any other subset of group in our church. When I say we, I mean you. I mean me. I mean us. Right? It's why at the end of every one of our gatherings, we say to you, go and be the church. Because we have been commissioned, Community Bible Church, according to Jesus, to go and make disciples. This is why we exist, to help people follow Jesus. And again, I know we finished Matthew last week, but before we move on to Jonah, I want to put a period on some things that Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 28. So I have two hopes this morning. One, small goal of giving you a biblical perspective of what it means to make disciples. A biblical perspective of what it means to make disciples. The second hope is I want to show you some ways that you can actually do that now. Not when you get your life squared away, why don't you figure that thing out that you've been working on for 20 years. No, now. How you can be a part of the work of making disciples. Look at 2 Corinthians Chapter five, we're gonna start in verse 17. This will be familiar to you if you have a background in church. Second Corinthians five, verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he entrusts to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Then he says this, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you have a background in church, you probably heard verse 17 before. You're probably familiar with this whole passage, but if you grew up in church, my guess is in some drawer somewhere you have a keychain or a bookmark with this verse on it, okay? This is a Hobby Lobby favorite, and for good reason. They picked this verse for good reason because the truth in it is absolutely incredible. It can change your life. But I'm convinced that the majority of us, we don't quite understand the depth of the beauty of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Because there's a way, and this is typically what we do, there's a way to read this verse and we over-individualize it to the degree that it strips its power. And what I mean is when we hear this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, it doesn't just mean that in Christ I become a new me. Or in Christ you become a new you. And yet, that's typically where we go with this. We make it about our individual morality or our individual sanctification, which just means the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, okay? We make it about our behavior. So an example of how this would go is if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, then what we think when we hear that is, I used to do all these things, but now that I'm a Christian, I don't do those things anymore. That's how we think about it. And it strips it of its power because what happens when you are a Christian, but you do the things that you swore you'd never do again? What happens then? We make it about our behavior. And and I'm not saying that there isn't truth to that. This doesn't have something to do with our external behavior. It does. Jesus does say to his disciples that if we want to follow him, we must take up our cross and follow him, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. We must. So there is a reality that following Jesus will and should bring about a change in external behavior. In fact, I think you could make the argument that if you've been following Jesus for for years and there is zero change in your life, then you're probably not following him. Because a couple chapters earlier, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So notice, it does not say, we all with unveiled face are transformed. It says we are being transformed, which means this is a process. This word, the Greek word that's translated transform here is is where we get our English word metamorphosis. It means to change physical form, to become something new. So the Bible says that when we, the spirit of God, removes the veil from our eyes so that we're not blinded by this world and our sin and we can see who Jesus is. It says behold the glory of the Lord. When we can see who he is and what he's done, the beauty of Christ, when we see that and know that he loves us, that we are then transformed from the inside out from one degree of glory to another. It's a process. If we're following Jesus the way the Bible says we should, our lives should be changing externally. So I'm not saying that's not part of being a Christian. What I'm saying is when Paul says in chapter five, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What the truth that he's trying to draw our attention to there is far deeper than here's the things you used to do and now you don't do those anymore. He's trying to draw us into a vision for the Christian life that is, that is far bigger than that. The story the Bible is telling is far bigger than you used to do these things, now you don't, okay? Um, most of you are probably familiar with the, ba- the way the Bible starts, right? What's the first book of the Bible? 
Genesis. We did better on that one. That's a, that word means beginnings, okay? It's the beginning of the Bible. It means beginnings. Chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning, God, what? Created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible starts. Or right, how does it end? What's the last book of the Bible? Revelation. Notice I didn't say revelations because it's revelation, one singular revelation to John from Jesus, from the glorified Jesus. But we get real weird about revelation. There's a spectrum and most people fall far on one side or the other. You either think it's super strange and you avoid it altogether, that's most of us, or you love it so much that it leads you to start like stockpiling and prepping things in your garage, okay? So we should probably find somewhere in the middle there. Listen to how the Bible ends. Revelation chapter 21, it begins in the the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's how it ends. And then, this this is the vision the glorified Jesus gives to John for us, for the church. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth passed away, the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said this, behold, I am making all things new. Church, this is the new creation that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter five. He's talking about the reality that there is a future day coming where God will bring his kingdom in full. And on that day, everything, everything that is wrong in our world will be made right. And all God's people said amen. And everything that is right in our world will shine in such a way that we may not even be able to recognize it. All things made new. No crying, death no more, mourning, no, no pain anymore. He himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. So again, this is the creation, the new creation that Paul's talking about. It's not just about individual transformation. It's not less than that. It's just far more. What Paul is saying when he says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is now part of new creation. We are part of what God is doing in making all things new. And church, this is the vision we need for the Christian life. That God's doing more than just, I used to do these bad things and now I don't. I have to feel bad about myself if I can't stop doing the bad things that I'm not supposed to be doing. We need a a different vision for the Christian life. This is the reason why so many of us are bored with Christianity, why so many of us are so easily captivated by these other stories and what the world has to offer to us. And why we think we have to make Jesus cool because we're, we're offering a different version of him than what the Bible gives to us. Jesus is moving and working in ways that, that we seldom realize, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation means that through faith, not through what you've done, but through faith in what he has done in the broken body and shed blood of Christ on your behalf, you are right now part of God's eternal plan to make right everything that's wrong in this world as a result of sin. And how much better is that than God wants to turn you into a better version of you, so quit cussing, stop lying, and quit looking at that stuff on the internet that you know you shouldn't. And again, I'm not saying we should do those things, God doesn't care, he does. What I'm saying is the vision, the engine for the Christian life is far better than that. If anyone is in Christ, he, is a, he or she is a part of new creation now. This is why the rest of the Bible says, or the rest of that verse says, the old has passed away, the new has come. He goes on to say that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. 
that what God was doing in the world through Jesus, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him because 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, God, the father made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're a Christian, you should memorize that verse. God gave, poured out onto Jesus the punishment for the sin that we deserved. And in place, we get Jesus' righteousness. So we are now in Christ through faith. And every time God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see all the reasons why we don't measure up or all the reasons why we have disqualified ourselves from being recipient of his love. He sees us as Christ in him, covered in his blood, perfect. This is why he goes on to say that that's what he's doing through us. This is the purpose God gives his people in the world, that we declare this truth. We are ambassadors for Christ, witnesses for him. And this is why it's tied to what we read in Revelation 21. A picture of what restored creation will look like is already present in us now because we are in Christ. In your life, because of your salvation, because of what Jesus has done for you and in you, you, not me and Bill, you, if you are in Christ, have been given the responsibility of showing this old world what that new world will be like someday because that new world's already begun in you and then through Jesus. This is what Jesus means when he says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you're a Christian now, quit, quit doing those old things, change your life. He's saying this is what you're a part of. It's what Paul means in Philippians 3 when he says that our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven if we are in Christ. You know what, that's not just about where you go after you die. It's about living your life now before death that shines a light on the kingdom that has forever defeated sin and death. There is a future day when all of creation will be completely restored and Christians have been entrusted with displaying new creation in our lives now. That's what it means to be the church. When we say go be the church, that's what we're talking about. God has invited you to join him and participate in what he's doing in the world. Let me ask you this. When is the last time you thought about your life that way? Have you ever thought about your life that way? Have you lost sight of, of, of this vision of the Christian life or has it kind of downshifted into, this is what I do, this is what I don't do. I get up, I read my Bible, I don't do the things that you, we shift down into that. But the Apostle Paul says, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. That our lives now point to the reality of that day, that God himself will take our face in his hands and wipe away every tear from our eyes that we get to participate in what God is doing in the world through his son, Jesus. Have you ever thought about your life that way that God has invited you in? And maybe this is the best thing I'll say to you today. He didn't do it reluctantly. If you're like me, and, and if I were listening to me right now, I would have some objections swirling around in my head. And you go, yeah, I know that's what the Bible says. But yeah, like we get a case of the yeah buts, you know? Yeah, but... Here's why that it wouldn't count for me because I have this past or because I still struggle in the present with the sin that I struggled with in the past or because I'm just a middle school student or uh, I'm not very good at talking to people about spiritual things. We come up, we got, we got a lot of yeah buts, okay? Um, and 2 Corinthians 5 doesn't say if anyone is mature, gifted, or if they have a lot to offer, they're a new creation. What's it say? If who is in Christ? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You know what that means? It's not about how good or bad we are, it's about how great he is. 
If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Over 100 times in the New Testament, this phrase, in Christ or one similar, is used. Through Christ, through him, in him. Over 100 times in the New Testament. And you know what they are? Every single one of them is the reminder that all your yeah buts don't define you anymore. We are defined by one yeah but, and it's found in Ephesians chapter two. Let me show you. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That sums up all of our yeah buts. The apostle Paul says, you were dead. Yeah, but God. Verse four, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, where? In Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not what you've done, a result of works that no one may boast. And he says, for we are his workmanship. God is moving, God is working. He's doing it in and through us. He's invited you into relationship with him through his son, through faith in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus because he wants to work not just in you, but through you. He's invited you in. We're created in Christ Jesus, new creation in him for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, okay? This is the same idea here in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says, in Christ, the old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The point I'm trying to make here is you don't get part A without part B. There is no reconciliation to him apart from living your life for him. There's no reconciliation to God through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus apart from living your life for him. It's why Paul says this in verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul says we died, or he died for us, Jesus, so now we all live for him. Again, this is our mission statement. Spend your life this way to go and make disciples. We live for him and he's told us how to live. Be a part of the work of helping people follow Jesus. He says the love of Christ controls us. If you have a different translation, it might say compels, right? Um, The apostle Paul says that for the Christian, it is the love of Christ for us, not our love for him, the love of Christ for us that when we become convinced that it's true, that it compels us to go live the life that he is inviting us into. Let me, let me say this, however aware, however convinced you are right now that you are loved by God because of Jesus, and that's a spectrum, isn't it? So if I ask you on a scale of one to 10, rhetorical question, on a scale of one to 10, how much do you think Jesus loves you? It, it tends to slide based on how well we're doing. So if you got up at six every morning this week and you read your Bible, you went on a walk and you spent some time praying and then you didn't really mess up and you hadn't really had any big you know, hiccups along the way. And I say, hey, how do you feel about God loving you? I feel pretty good. But what if last night you messed up and you did the thing you swore you would never do again? And I ask you this morning, how do you feel right now about God's love for you in Christ? And you might go, I don't know. So wherever you are on that spectrum, however convinced you are right now of God's love for you in Christ, I can confidently say to you, you're not even close 
You're not even close. And you go, how do you know? I don't need to know you. All I need to know is what Paul says next in chapter three of Ephesians. He says this, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and what is the length and what is the height and what is the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God." Imagine this, essentially Paul prays in prison for the church in Ephesus and and the thing he thinks to pray most for them is if you could just get this, it would change your life. He's asking the Holy Spirit to give them strength in their inner being to comprehend with the saints that there is no end to Jesus' love for them. If you could just understand by the power of the Spirit that there is no height to it, there is no breadth to it, there is no depth to the love of Christ for you, then you would live your life in what he says, the fullness of God. He calls it the fullness of God. That's what it means to embrace the life of if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, which is so much different than you're a Christian now, quit doing those bad things. We are convinced of Jesus's love for us, despite the fact that's the farthest thing from what we deserve from him. And as we are further convinced by the power of the spirit who removes the veil, then we are compelled by his love for us to go and share that love with the people around us. If you are a new creation, You have been given a new heart. You are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in a relationship with the creator God of the universe. The Christian life is not just live for God. Do what he says, don't do what he says not to do. The Christian life is first and foremost a life with him. Did you hear it in Revelation 21? God himself will be there with them. He will be their God. They will be his people. It's about relationship. It started in the garden that way. It ends in the new uh, creation that way. It's about living your life in relationship with God. And then from that place of knowing that you're loved by God, you go and share the love with the people around you. This is the call to make disciples, right? Not, what do you wanna go after you die? Obviously, that's an element of it. But the God of the universe has invited you into relationship with him. That's the call to make disciples. Come and follow him. Come and see. Go and show the world today what the new world will be like someday because the new world has already begun in you now. That's my first hope, right? What does it mean, this biblical understanding of what it means to, we've been commissioned to make disciples. Here's the last thing. How do we do it? And I said in the eight o'clock, I had way less time in this spot than I thought I would have. And in this one, we have less. So here we go. Three ways the Bible tells us that we can display the future world in the present world. These aren't the only three ways. It's just three ways that I'm gonna give you. Through our character, through our work, and through our love. The first one is our character. Matthew chapter five, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, then how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. City set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So when you hear Jesus say this, let your light shine so that, through your good works, so that you may, uh, what's he say? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So rhetorical question here, but when you hear Jesus say, let your light shine, do good works, what do you think of when you hear good works? Do you think of things you do? 
or do you think of who you are? We think of things we do, probably, right? Let your good works, your life, shine so that people will give glory to God uh, in, in heaven. And what's interesting is what, everything that comes next in the sermon, Jesus moves the emphasis from the things they're supposed to do and he puts the emphasis on who they're supposed to be. He says things like, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, which is good, we can all agree, right? But I say to you, what about the lust in your heart? He moves emphasis off of what we do onto who we are. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, which we can all agree is good. But I say to you, what about the anger in your heart? So he moves the emphasis off the external and puts it on the internal. Again, not because what we do doesn't matter, but what's most important is why we do it. Jesus wants his disciples to have kingdom character, right? Here's why. In the first century, when Jesus says it's salt of the earth, um, they didn't use salt like we use it. How do we use salt? How do, you, let me, how do you use it at jalapenos? On chips, right? Because that's delicious, and without it, it's just crunch, right? There's nothing. We use it as a flavor additive, but in the first century, they used it as a way to preserve their food from spoiling, from decay. So that's what would have been in every one of Jesus' original audience's mind when he said, you are the salt of the earth. He's saying that we our, his church should have a preservative effect on the world. The presence of churches should ensure that because we are here, the world isn't as bad as it could be. And so our responsibility in the world is, is to be in it, not of it, which does not mean that it's our job to rid the world of all evil. That's Jesus's job. But our presence should act as this preservation of complete moral decay as we seek to resist evil. One way we do that is by having kingdom character. Again, this is evident in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't start with what needs to change in the world. He doesn't look at our city and say, well, you know what's wrong with it? It's the school systems and the roads and our government. And if the tax structure was different, if we had different political officials and this was, he doesn't go there. He says, not with what needs to change around you. He starts with what needs to change in you. And what Jesus is showing us here is that to be good for the world, church, we have to be different than the world. To be good for the world, we have to be different from the world. And that's, that's not better. Don't hear me say better. We're different, why? Empowered by the Holy Spirit because God loves us despite the fact that's not what we deserve. And that's what we invite people into. To be good for the world is we have to be different from the world. And when we have kingdom character, when we live these kingdom character lives, the world around us can see in our lives a picture of what the world to come will be like. It's an imperfect life or imperfect picture for sure, but it is a glimpse of it. And so let me just ask you this. Have you ever thought about your obedience to Jesus like that? Have you ever thought about your life of following Jesus like that? Where, here's an example. When, when you are faced with temptation, so just pic picture in your mind right now the last time you felt tempted to do what you knew God didn't want you to do. And I don't, want, I don't care what decision you made from there, but just think about the last time you felt tempted. Here's what I want to tell you. In that moment, you had a decision to make. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God has empowered you to make that decision, right or wrong, yes or no, right? When we, when we are faced with temptation, we have the choice. We could give into it. You could, and it would, in your life, it would be more evidence that evil and sin and death exists, or you could resist temptation and in your obedience would be evidence, not only of your love for Jesus, but that new creation is present in that moment. We tend to think about our obedience simply connected to our own sanctification. It's just my life following Jesus and I need to grow and I need to be obedient. That's how we think about it. 
But what this is telling us is that our obedience, our kingdom character is connected to the mission of God. It's what it means to be new creation. It means that God wants you to use you to say something to the world. So we fight sin and temptation, not just because it hurts us and it hurts God and Jesus died on the cross for that, but we fight sin and temptation because we believe that there is a day coming where every single one of us will not be slaves to our impulses. There's a day coming where Jesus is gonna wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more, no crying, nor pain anymore. Like none of those things that drive us to do the things that we hate doing, but we keep going back to them, will exist in this new world. And so we say no to those impulses now because we believe that day's coming. We've been given gospel power to live this type of life. That's the first one, character. Here's the second one, work. We reveal to this old world, the new world that will be, through the way we work. Colossians 3 verse 23 says, whatever you do, everyone say, whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So similarly to how Jesus moves the emphasis off of what we do when he puts it on why we do it, this passage moves the emphasis off what you do for work and it moves it on who you do it for. Now, this is completely countercultural for us because you meet someone and you go, hey, man, what do you do? And you don't have to ask who you're doing it for because that's assumed, right? You're doing it for yourself. Well, I do this and I do it for me because I make this salary and I can pay for this and I get this kind of life and it affords me this. So what do you do? And the Bible moves it off of what you do and moves the emphasis on who you do it for. And it's not us, we do it for him. He's saying, we serve the Lord Jesus. This shows us that our work is informed by a future day when Jesus will return. Your work is informed by a future day when Jesus will return. And that's not just because you get a paycheck and you can tithe or give some of that money to the church. The actual work you do is informed by a future day when Jesus will return. And I'm not even just talking about the stuff on your job description if you have one, or the stuff that you receive a paycheck for. Let me give you this definition from a guy, uh, Ben Witherington, he wrote a book called Work, creative title. he says this, any, work is any necessary and meaningful task that God calls and gifts a person to do and which can be undertaken to the glory of God and for the edification and aid of human beings. I wanna wait for the second half. So basically said, work is anything that God has called you and gifted you to do that can glorify him and be good for others. That's work. And being inspired by the spirit, and here's the part, and foreshadowing the realities of new creation. We never get to that part. Even if you have the most biblical definition of work, you go, yep, God's gifted me, he's called me, it glorifies him, it's good for others. And we stop there. He says, that, that reality foreshadows what will be in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Our work matters, whatever it is. And Christians are called to do their work with excellence for Jesus. So if there's needs that you can meet around you, do it. If there's resources that you've been given to steward, steward them in a way that contributes to the flourishing of the city and the good of the people around you. And as we do that, It serves as a foreshadowing of the day where all things will be made new and everything wrong will be made right. Have you ever thought about your work like that? Have you ever thought about your work like that? Wherever you are is somewhere God has placed you. And at the very least, even if you hate your job and you can't imagine how it could possibly foreshadow the realities of the new creation, at the bare minimum, you are surrounded by people who are image bearers of God. And when you serve them, you can be a gentle, humble, sacrificial presence of Jesus even as you fill in the blank. Stay-at-home mom, attorney, teacher, 
medical student, college student, barista, anywhere in between. Our work foreshadows the realities of new creation. Um, Here's the last one, love. Our love, our character, our work, and our love, specifically our love for God and others. I'm gonna let Jesus just kind of line this out for us. Matthew 22, this guy comes up to him and says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So being a new creation means that what should be present in our lives, one of the primary things that you should be marked by, if you are in Christ, is a love for God and a love for others. And our love isn't the way we earn God's love. We've already covered that. He gives us his love despite the fact that we don't deserve it, but the way when we're convinced of that, we're compelled to respond by loving him loving the people around us. Let's look at John 13. Jesus says this to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love from one another. Again, in order to be good for the world, we have to be different from the world. And one of the distinctives that marks us, that separates us, is the way that we should be loving one another. The way that relationships exist inside the church should be different from the way relationships exist outside the church. Sadly, it's not always the case. Maybe seldom is. This is what uh, Jesus says. This is how they'll know by the way you love one another. And he goes on to say this, Matthew chapter five. You've heard it said, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do, you not even, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So on top of a love for one another that should be distinct and different from a love in relationships outside, he's saying we should love outsiders in that way as well. He says, even the Gentiles love people who are like them. They don't even know God and they live that way. So how much more should we since we love God? His point is, Hating people because they're different. And we don't like to say hate very much. We just don't like them very much. Hating people that are different than us is old creation. And Jesus says that anyone who's in Christ, he's a new creation. The distinct way that we love others is the way Jesus loved. Romans 5 verse 8 tells us how Jesus loved, but God shows his love for us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So how and when did Jesus love us? At our worst, He loved us at our worst. We're most vulnerable. We were dead in our sin. Dead, spiritually dead. Dead people don't make themselves alive, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Jesus loves us at our worst when we could do absolutely nothing to improve our situation. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. One of the distinct ways that Christians should love is we should be marked by a love for people who are the most vulnerable. When we love like Jesus loved, we represent God's heart to the world and we point to the day where God will wipe away every tear. This is, we want to be a, a part of the work because we believe that God will wipe away every tear that has been and there will be no more tears. We want to be a part of hearing the cries of women in crisis pregnancy. 
We want to be a, a part of, of, of the work of hearing the cries of both the child and the mother. And we want to be a part of the work of fostering adoption. That's not just giving money for people who do that kind of thing. But we, our church, being a part of being willing to sacrifice our time, our energy, our effort, our money, opening our homes for some of the most vulnerable children in our community. We want to have eyes and ears open to the vulnerable because we believe there's a new creation coming where all that is wrong in the world will be made right. Which means we should also be marked by love for those who don't know Jesus. Not just the vulnerable, but for those who don't know Jesus. And living this way means sharing our faith in Christ with others. Respond to the Great Commission to make disciples by actually sharing our faith with others. Let me just ask you as we close Have you thought about your life this way? That you are part of new creation? Is sharing your faith a part of your life? Are you actively loving and pursuing anyone around you who has either rejected Jesus or doesn't know him? And if the answer is no, you need to be honest. Are you actively loving and pursuing anyone in your life who has either rejected Jesus or doesn't know him? If the answer is no, I think the, the solution is we come back to 2 Corinthians 3.18 that says, True change, transformation happens as we behold the glory of the Lord, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. If you have lost this vision for the Christian life, then my guess is you've lost vision of Jesus. He says, behold the glory of the Lord and we're transformed. Have you lost the sight of the beauty of Jesus? And if so, church, get your eyes off the things of this world. And you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Every single one of us has different capacities, different gifting, different proximity to different people, different opportunities. But for anyone who is in Christ, the Bible says he is a new creation. We have been commissioned by God to live as ministers of reconciliation. He says we are ambassadors for Christ, which is living, breathing, walking representatives in this world that there really is a God who really does love you. And he really has made a way for you to spend eternity with him and there really is a day coming where everything that's wrong in this world will be made right. This is what it means to go and be the church. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in singing. Lord, we're thankful for this time in your word, week in and week out as we open it, you speak to us. I pray that you'd help us by the power of the Holy Spirit. If someone's struggling in here, if they feel stuck in their life and their sin, would you help them? Would you let us help them? Pray that you would allow us to be this type of church, that we wouldn't be satisfied with what you've done, but that we would live our lives in such a way that points to the, of, of what you will ultimately do when your kingdom will come, where you will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more, no mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Help us, God, to live our lives in light of that day. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand up, let's respond in singing.